2 Peter 2, starting at verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth, and their damnation slumbereth not. So far, let us pray. Father in heaven, as we now turn to uh, your word again, we pray that you would triumph through the preaching of your word, and that um, you would bring conviction where conviction is needed, that you would bring humility where we may be proud. Lord, that you would bring eyes of faith, Lord, where we may be dead in our sins and our trespasses. And Lord, most of all, that Christ will be lifted, that we would see him as our only hope, our Savior and our King, and that we would go from here encouraged and vigilant and rising up to uh, the challenges that the coming week will bring. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So this morning, um, as we continue in this series, we're going to enter into a very dark and, uh, I guess, uh, convicting chapter with respect to false teachers that are within the church in Peter's day and now as well. And so I have three points I'd like to pull out of these verses. They are all centered on the word destruction, and you'll see later why that is the case. So they are these destructive teachings, destructive ways and a destructive end. So destructive teachings, destructive ways, and destructive end. So first of all, destructive teachings, really the first <clears throat> verse here when it talks about there will be false prophets also among the people as there shall be also false teachers among you. You see, the early church already in its inception went through a very strong crisis because there was teachers within the body who were claiming authority, but the apostles were opposing their claims. You read 2 Corinthians 11, and you'll see that happening. You read John talking about this. Peter talks about it. Jude does. Um, Paul does. This is a very common theme in the letters. And kind of in a what's called a chiasm, which is an ABBA pattern, kind of a triangular pattern, um, Peter approaches this. If you look at your text starting back in chapter 1 at the end, at verse 16, he talks about New Testament faithful teachers. That would be your A point. And then moving into your B point, he talks about Old Testament faithful prophetic word, the faithful prophetic word, verse 20. And then now in verse chapter 2, verse 1, the other B point is Old Testament false prophets. So false prophets, false and faithful uh, prophets lined up. And then your A point again would be false teachers. So moving from faithful teachers, false teachers, centering in on the faithful prophetic word and the false prophets. So kind of a chiasm, just so you see some of the, the terms and the technicalities that are in the text. Notice that in the Old Testament community, false prophets were present. They were there in the Old Covenant community. You just think back to Israel's history. Read the book of Kings. Read Jeremiah. Read Chronicles. And you will see constantly this tension between false prophets and the prophets of Jehovah. Prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth and prophets of God. 
But here the term is different. I don't know if you noticed it in your text. It goes from pseudo-prophetes, pseudo-prophets, to pseudo-didaskalos, false teachers. Teachers, you notice the shift. And it's almost like saying the canon of Scripture is at some level closed, and we're now dealing with those who interpret the canon of Scriptures. And this term, false teachers, is only used here in the entire New Testament. It's not used anywhere else. But the concept of false teachers is everywhere. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he leaves the church of Ephesus after he had been there quite a while, and the elders meet him at Miletus, he warns them and he says this. He says, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now, one of the questions we have to ask is, are these false teachers, are they people who are claiming the office of teacher, or are they those who are teachers who are now teaching false things? Which one is it? Well, it's probably both. They assumed the office they were never qualified to have, and then within that assumption, they went and taught false things. They took the title and spoke the lies. Now, think about what this means. Teachers in the churches of God are not just those who, well, I feel like being a teacher, so sign me up kind of thing. Or I have something to say that people, I'm sure, want to hear. That's not how the teaching office works. Just like in the Old Testament, it was God who commissioned these mouthpieces, the prophets. So in the New Testament, who equips teachers? It's the Spirit of God that equips teachers. Now, look carefully at the text here. Notice that it says there were false prophets, even as there shall be false teachers. It doesn't say even as there are false teachers. It's a future tense. It's like something that's going to happen. But if you read the rest of this letter, you realize they're already in the church. So is Peter kind of just mumbling up his grammar here, speaking of future teachers, even though he's addressing them in the church? Why would he do this shift from what seems to be present to something that's coming? What would that mean? I think the answer to that is in chapter 3, verse 3. Look there when it says this. I'll start here at verse 2, where he says that we may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. He's referring back to the Old Testament. And of the commandments of us, he's now talking the present time, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, and now look what he does. Knowing this first, that there shall come scoffers, or there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. You notice the technical term last days. And remember, he's pushing back from the Old Testament prophets to the last days. That's a categorical statement. He's basically saying that by using the future tense and tying it in with these last days, these are the days of fulfillment. The last days is the entire period from Jesus coming and his inaugurating the kingdom until his return in glory. And that's why I think he's using the future tense because he's comparing it to that era that went before. And so he's saying in this entire age, the church will be under assault from false teachers. So that includes our time because we are living in the last days, the times of the kingdom. So have you run into these false teachers? You run into people who are teaching kind of a kingdom ethic. 
They say, oh yeah, Jesus came and he's just teaching us some sort of an ethical system. But they deny the kingdom Lord. Maybe you've seen teachers, I remember this at college, that they would teach me that, well, all religions ultimately lead up the hill to God. And they deny Christ's sole claim as the only way, the only Savior for sinners. Second Peter and the epistle of Jude are like brother-sister. They're very close to each other. If you compare what they're talking about, they both warn about false teachers. Jude talks about this as well. And Jude says that in verse 4, he says, there were certain men crept in unawares. Peter says differently. He says, there shall be false teachers among you. See the difference? In Jude, they're infiltrating from the outside in. In Peter, they're already here. They're among the confessing church. And so Peter is operating this among you. They're in the doors of the church. They could be church members. They're the people that could be befriending your kids and teaching them false things. They could be in churches leading Bible studies. They, in some churches, sadly, are elders leaders and they are misguiding the flock just like in the Old Testament even so now God is sovereign and God allows these teachers in for a purpose what would that purpose be God is proving his people in Deuteronomy 13 verse 3 in the Old Testament about the false prophets he says this he says thou shalt not hearken unto their words Don't listen to that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. And then he says this, For the Lord your God proveth you. He's testing the people. To know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's Old Testament. Listen to this from the New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul. Similar language. 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. These things, they show something. False teachers... Among the churches, they prove the strength of church leadership. Do they identify this? They test the theological anchors of a church. And for all of us, they reveal our understanding of the gospel. Do we really know Jesus? Because when the tests come, when the tryings come, are you serving the same Jesus? And now we get to that little term, privily. Remember in Psalm 10, as we opened in our call to worship, and it talked about the wicked, how sneaky and conniving they are. Here we see the same thing. Who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. This, is, this word privily means to bring in by the side, to kind of smuggle it in. They can look pious. They could be your friends. They could look very legitimate. They could look very concerned for the gospel and for Jesus Christ. They sound biblical. They're not going to use clearly, patently wrong language. They'll smuggle in toxic teachings. In the early church, in the first four centuries of the church, guess what the number one challenge was? Who is this Jesus? How do we understand Son of God, Son of Man? How do we understand God the Father sending the Son and and? Church councils met to decide these issues. But remember this. Old heresies get recycled. This week I was talking to a Mormon and we got talking about who Jesus is and 
I said, well, your Jesus is not the same as our Jesus. He's like, oh, he uses the same Bible. Their Jesus is a brother of Satan. Their Jesus is a created being. It's blasphemy to serve that Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. Don't get fooled by what sounds right. Do you listen to Christian literature or listen to Christian speakers with an attentively careful, discerning ear? Do you think that you're above being duped? We're not. Don't think we can stand on our own. We need the body. We need sound teachers. You see, these teachings, they work like rust. They're slow. They slowly seize up the bearings of faith, right? They're not overnight. But slowly, one day, it's stuck. And it doesn't move. How many churches, think in our day, how many churches in our communities once were bastions of truth, once were places where you could send a friend to, knowing they'd hear the gospel, and now they're hearing anything but the gospel. Some feel-good messages, therapeutic deism is all that's being offered. And so Peter is clear. Look how he labels this. Damnable heresies. That's our word, destructive destructive, damnable heresies. Now, when we hear the word heresy, what do we instantly maybe think of in our connotation, in our time? We think of deviant doctrine because that's how the word has taken on the meaning. But in the original, it actually is more than that. It actually refers to a sect or a faction within the group. It's like a party division. And you see this happening a lot in churches. They go good for a while. Somebody gets a prominent position or he's quite a a uh, charismatic individual, and he creates a subgroup, a sect. And if he's not sound, that sect leads to falsehood and leads to division. That's a heresy. And so we have to realize that it's more than just dissenting teaching. It also then has an accompanying lifestyle, because that's what sects do. They have a whole lifestyle around them, kind of like a club. So in the Bible... When you see the word heresy, think of doctrine and community being boundly, tightly bound together. And so the presence of a heresy is in opposition both to the teachings of God and the ways of God. It's both. Because if you segregate the body, you can smell it. Something's going on. The word damnable, like I said, is destructive. It's used 19 times in the entire New Testament. That's not a lot. Of those 19 times, 2 Peter uses it the most, this letter. And of 2 Peter, this set of three verses will use it the most. 2 Peter 2.1, damnable heresies will bring upon themselves swift destruction. Same word. Chapter 2, verse 2, pernicious ways. Same word. Chapter 2, verse 3, their damnation slumbereth not. Peter is loading and front-loading this whole section on false teachers with the word destruction, damnation, the end of where this all goes. Like a fire that is out of control, these teachings destroy. That's where they lead. In front of them is a path that leads to hell. Now, Sometimes we think, well, okay, these false teachings doesn't really bother me because that's only for the intellectual type of people. 
I'm not that kind of person. I like to tinker with my hands. I'm not really a head person. Just not that kind of guy. I believe the simple gospel. So I'm not going to be affected by this. Or you might be thinking, well, it's just not that bad. Really, they're hardly saying or doing anything wrong. I don't notice it at all. I still believe in Jesus. What's the problem? You know what Paul says to that? He says, know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. That's how it works. Like leaven. Think of how many people in church history under the dark clutches of the Roman Catholic Church were duped and souls were led into perdition. Remember how they taught and teach that salvation is in the church, not in Christ alone. Think of how they worship Mary, how purgatory expiates sins, how the bread and the wine are changed into the, into the body of Christ. Is it any wonder that the first thing you see the early reformers doing, I've got four volumes on my shelf of early confessions and creeds because they categorized, they realized that theological rigor was important. And right away you see Zwingli starting catechisms. We get the Heidelbergs, the Belgics, the Westminsters, the London Baptists, bastions of establishing sound doctrine. Because we don't want to go back to heresies. How vigilant and convicted we ought to be of sound doctrine in our churches. Don't tread lightly over our confessional statements. Parents, do not neglect to instill in your children sound teaching and sound doctrine. The seeds are sown at a young age. And please, when someone approaches you about teaching materials or something you said or a podcast you're listening to, be attentive. Listen to what they have to say and check it out with the word of God. Bring in sound friends if you're not sure, people who you can trust to test these things, to hold fast to that which is true. Now notice in the text, there's an intensification happening here because it goes on and says, even denying the Lord that bought them. Um, what does that mean? Because this is a very, very controversial phrase. And we'll just pack it, unpack it uh, just a little bit here. Notice, first of all, what they do. These teachers deny the Lord that bought them. They deny him. Who's talking? Who wrote this letter? Peter. What did Peter do? Denied the Lord three times. And so Peter's mind must be going back to what happened to him. But there was someone else who spoke against Jesus. One of the other disciples. Judas. Peter was restored. Judas was not restored. He is known as the son of what? Son of perdition. And so one commentator notes this. He says, to deny Jesus Christ is the opposite of confessing him. It is thus saying no instead of amen. It is patent rejection of Jesus Christ. And denial can take many, many forms, can't it? But at the core, it is rejecting anything which is proper and essential to who God is, who Jesus is. And who we are. That's what you deny. Notice they deny the Lord that bought them. But this raises a very important question. If these are false teachers. If they are on the road to hell. How can they be bought? Because when you buy something you own it. 
How can that ownership be lost, especially something that is owned by our Lord Jesus Christ, something that he bought with his own blood? That's a big question, and that's why this is such a controversial verse. Does the blood of Christ not definitively, particularly, and finally save all for whom he died? Does it? You bet it does. Particularly, definitively, and finally, it will save all for whom Christ shed his blood. So what does this then mean if they are bought? First of all, we have to look at the word Lord here because it is not the normal word Lord. Normally in the New Testament, the word Lord is kurios, where we get Lord. This word here, Lord, is despotes. What do you hear in that? Despot, a despot. Now, that can sound negative, but in this case, it's used positively. In Acts 4, for example, God is called with the same word despotes. When the church is being persecuted... What do they say? They say this, Lord, Despotes, thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They're appealing to something about his supremacy. The word Despotes comes from a term that refers to a master who has ownership over his servants. That's what it means. And so Peter brings up that word to talk about how these false teachers relate to God. Why would he do that? Because Christ has legal authority over them, it appears. Let's go back and look at this a little bit more. Look also at the word bought. He bought them. The word here, agorazzo, refers to marketing purchases. At the marketplace, slaves would be bought free by a master and now under their ownership. Same kind of concept consecrated to a new master's. So in what sense are these deniers bought? That's our question. It is in this sense, that when they confess Jesus Christ, they show themselves to have been bought free from their former idolatries and ways. And here's the key to this passage. And so it appears. It's the language of appearance. It's formerly called phenomenological language, that which looks to be bought. He's not making a theological statement of their heart. He's making a theological statement of what they look like. They appear to be bought. And that is why the language of buying is so clear. It's the language of appearance. They were part of the church. They appeared to be one of us. And now they're gone. They reject the master. It's interesting because this language of master, despot, is so interesting because if you read the rest of Second Peter chapter 2, what are they constantly kicking at? Authority. That's what they're kicking at. The idea of the authority of God, the authority of angels, mights and powers that are higher than them, they kick at that. And that's why this language of despotes is used. They're kicking at it. John describes people like this in Second John or First John 2. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, he says, that it may be manifest that they were not all of us. So the Bible has a category for people that are church members, that are among us, that appear bought 
but in the end show themselves apostate, sons of perdition. Maybe you've met such people. In the beginning, they looked legit. They joined our church. They cleaned up their lives. They cleaned up their language. They partook of communion. Maybe they even took on positions of church leadership. I know this is happening. In churches in our communities, I've seen this. But over time, I can think of one individual. He denied the gospel. Eventually, everybody makes it. There's no definitive, clear teaching. And slowly, old lifestyles reappear, and they start bringing division because of their prominence. I've seen this. Maybe you've seen this as well. It's a sad reality, but the Bible warns this about this. At core, they are kicking against God. So how do you recognize a heresy sliding in? How do you smell a false teacher is getting his foot in the door? What would you say? How do we notice this? We watch for how they speak of God, of Jesus Christ, and his lordship in their lives. What do they say about the gospel? What do they say about Jesus' call and claim on them? What do they understand with respect to who God is? You see, profession, keep this in our minds, guys. Profession means nothing without submission. Some of you here have professed Jesus Christ and you have no idea, no clue, no desire to submit to him. If that's you, you're not a Christian because we say he is Savior and Lord, my Lord. I owe my life to him. How readily a true disciple recognizes the voice of the shepherd. How freeing Christ is for true Christians. We welcome, we welcome his claim on our lives. The richness of knowing Christ as our master, it's freeing. I would rather, I would not want to be anywhere else than under Christ's lordship. In fact, I remember when I first got saved, one of the passages that was so valuable and precious to me, Galatians 5, 1, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage to run back to the do's and don'ts, to run back to the enslaving bondage of me trying to keep the law on my own strength and to work my way up is bondage but the freedom of being in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a lordship and a savior that I want to be under. That is no yoke. That is Christianity. Does that describe your heart? It's not always easy, is it? But are you prepared to obey him? Is that what you want? To obey Jesus Christ? As we close the first point, which is definitely the longest point, I'm going to deal with the last phrase that bring upon themselves swift destruction at the end, in the third point. So this moves us to our second point, destructive ways. Notice what it says, and they shall, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. Apaleia, same word, they're destructive, they're damnable ways. Pernicious, kind of an interesting word. We don't see it much anymore. What does pernicious mean? Well, it comes from the Latin. Latin is interesting. Per means completely. Nersus comes from violent death. So they're pernicious ways. Think about that. They're ways that are completely violent and destructive. 
That's why he calls them pernicious. That's why the translators used this word. The main point here, however, is look at the word many. Many shall follow them. Floodgates. Errors are contagious. Just like a virus. You cough on somebody. They pick it up. They cough on the next. Boom, 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 boom. Right? The same way with error. It just goes. It infiltrates churches. And before you know it, a church that was solid is now suddenly vastly infiltrated. You think back to the kings. This is nothing new. Worshippers of Baal were fast and furious. And they infiltrated the body. In no time, the covenant community was bowing down at the temples of Baal and Ashtaroth. And only a remnant few remained as followers of Jehovah. In fact, in Jeremiah 5.31, God says this. He says, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means. But then the next phrase is the striking one. And my people love to have it so. They just run after it. It's kind of nice. It's freeing. Hey, we get to call our own shots. John Calvin, remember this, early in the Reformation, you'd think, oh, lots of people coming to Geneva, flooding in, receiving the gospel. He says this, hardly one in ten of those who have once made a profession of Christ retains the purity of faith to the end. One in ten, Calvin is saying. It was already then happening. You better believe it's happening now. And so he says they follow these ways. This is... In the text, when it says, many shall follow their ways, this is anti-discipleship. You see, bad ideas aren't just pie-in-the-sky things. They have boots-on-the-ground consequences. And so how different are we, Church of God, when it comes to the movies we watch, when it comes to the language we use, when it comes to the way we do dating and marriage and understanding those things. Since when is it right for Christians to date unbelievers? Since when has that been allowed and permissible in the church? But it's happening. Since when should Christians shack up before they're married? That's unbiblical. Let's hold fast to sound teaching. Get it from the scripture. The marriage bed is undefiled and fornicators God shall judge, it says. This is just examples. But the church is playing fast and loose with these things. And that is why Peter uses such strong language about the ghastly consequences. Look at this, the next phrase. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, literally the Greek, by whom, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be blasphemous, blasphemed. It is because of a church that gets sucked into the vortex of false teaching that the world watches on and scoffs. I've heard this firsthand. Maybe you have as well. Oh, if that's what Christianity is, if that's who they are, I want nothing to do with it. What a joke. You're no different. You just go to church on Sunday. I see you in the bars with me on Saturday night getting drunk. Your God really does nothing for you. It's just, it's a tag on. It's a bad for you. Why would I need him? I have a friend who told me, that for years it was that precise reality that kept him far from the church for years. Many 
shall follow their pernicious ways of, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be blasphemed, evil spoken of. And this is nothing new. Get this, Pliny the Younger. Who's this? He's a Roman magistrate. Get the years he lived from 61 AD. That's really early. The apostles are still alive, writing to 113, somewhere in, in that era. He says this, writing to the emperor Trajan, the Roman emperor, he says this. He says, true, they had been of that persuasion, speaking of apostates, but they had quit it. Some three years, others many years, and a few as much as 25 years ago. They all worshipped now, he says, at your statue and the images of the gods and they cursed Christ. And then he goes on to actually thank the apostates. He says, because of the apostates, our temples are doing great again. Worship of the gods is just in top notch. He says, pagan temples and feasts are completely, he says, revived. Clement of Alexandria in his early letters, 150 to 215, he also talks about shameless, wicked lives of some professing believers. And he actually uses the same word, blasphemion, to talk about that. And so Peter calls the, the thing that they're scoffing kind of peculiar language. Look what he calls it. They speak evil of the way of truth. The way of truth. That's no accident. Because in the book of Acts, what does Christianity get called? Most often, followers of the way of the way. Interesting language, right? To, to call it followers of the way. It means it's more than a confession. It's easy to say, in our culture particular, I'm a, Je I'm a Jesus follower. What would Jesus do? That's so easy. But it's a way. It's a life. It's an entire path, a trajectory you set yourself on. Notice in verse 15 of the same chapter, it says, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor. There's two ways. You can go down one path or the other. Jesus talked about broad is the way that leads to destruction. And straight is the gate. And there be few that find it that leads to life. So what we do, what you do, what I do, what we all do, is not a private matter. We like to think that way. I just keep my Christianity to my family. Do my catechism. We read our, our, our devotions to our children. Man, if we're homeschooling, we're even more private. It's pretty easy, and then we'll go to church on Sundays. Closed door. Oh, no. No, no. We're in the world. But we better not be of the world. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about this following of the way, he brings up two community relationships. And he actually uses the same terms that he says, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And guess which two relationships they are? Servants to masters, so the vocation, the work relationship. And the other one, wives to husbands, the marriage relationship. And he says, church, if we're playing fast and loose at work or in our marriages, we are bringing shame to the name of Jesus Christ. Does our Christ not call for our highest praises? Is his worth not that which demands our greatest gifts and sacrifice and allegiance? Now notice 
It goes on, it says, and through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you. Covetousness, greedy desire, and feigned words. You know the word feigned words refers to? A wax or a clay piece that they can manipulate and shape however they like to. And they use pretentious words. It sounds so good. It's a faith of greed. But here's the interesting thing. They're making merchandise of the Christians. This is interesting. This is what they're doing. They're taking that which belongs to the Lord, to Jesus Christ, and they're selling it, as it were, to the world. They're operating a business, but they're driving their traffic, their business with souls. And susceptible Christians are being turned into goods. Does that happen to you? You went down the path for a while of a false teacher. You bought the book. You bought the whole series because he was that good. And you were being turned into a commodity for your soul. You know, this faith for filthy lucre is nothing new, is it? Remember Simon Magus? Acts 8, what did he do? He wanted the gift of the Holy Spirit so he could make money off of it. Rome sold indulgences. They gave and sold church offices to those who would pay the most. The prosperity gospel sucks the wealth out of its followers. Here's another one. Bible publishing companies. I looked this up. I thought, well, how many examples can I come up with here? Listen to this. The Outdoors Bible, the Sports Bible, the Athletes Bible, the Competitors Bible, the Superheroes Bible, the Military Edition, the Way for Cowboys New Testament. What is happening? The Bible is being turned into a commodity to dupe people into thinking, well, it'll fit your hobby, your lifestyle. We're turning this thing and molding it to your hobbies and your your likes, your occupation. Our identity is Christ, not our hobbies. Everything we are should subserve to the word, not the word subserving to me. What is going on? It's so easy for authors to get greedy too, isn't it? To sell a new book and to sell a new book. What's a great audience to pick on? Christianity. You make a lot of money selling to Christians. Oh, and the allure of being on the best-selling list or the prestige of now being that speaker that everybody wants to hear. John Trapp, writing in the 1500s, says this. He says, To subvert the gospel and to turn souls into merchandise is to drive a trade with hell. Oh, that we would be vigilant to... uh, to show the way of truth so that souls, instead of being turned into a commodity, that people would be profited, that souls would be blessed with what we tell them and teach them, and how thankful we ought then to be for faithful teachers and for Christian heritage. The heritage we have as Christians, you read the Puritans, you read some of the, uh, the books that are on the shelves today from solid teachers. We are blessed with those books, and let us avail ourselves of them. What a mercy we have that we have a Savior who will never betray his sheep. He will never turn you and me into a commodity off to the slaughter. He himself went to the slaughter for us. What a Savior. And that finally leads me to our last point. Destructive. Destructive teachings. And that is tying in the bookends. 
Because look back at your text. Remember I skipped the end of verse 1? And bring upon themselves swift destruction. And then verse 3, you can clearly see it. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. This is like the covers of a book. The book ends. He brings judgment there in verse 1. He's bringing judgment again in verse 3. And packed in between is everything we've spoken about. What is he saying when he talks about, in verse 1, the swift destruction? What he's saying is that as a lightning stroke comes without warning. You've been in a thunderstorm once and there was a stroke right there. You didn't see it coming, did you? That's what the coming of our Lord will be like. God's judgment will be swift, it will be sudden, and it will be intense. In Thessalonians, Paul says this, For when they say peace and safety, then in sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. I remember when um, my wife was pregnant with children, one of them, and you just go to bed the night before, you don't know if it's coming, and all of a sudden, you've got to wake up, you've got to go to the hospital, because it's come, it's travail, right? And for anybody here who's been through that, you know what I'm talking about. It comes just like that, without warning. Similarly, in verse 3, he says, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not. You see that? Now of a long time lingereth not. From ancient times, God's judgment is against any who dare to pervert his ways. You know, as we're going to unpack the rest of Second Peter 2 in the next messages, you're going to see that judgment of a long time being unpacked. The word linger is the opposite of work. Because if you're not working, you're lingering. And the false teachers were basically saying, well, God's judgment, it's delayed, it's put on hold, or there are even some of them saying, it's come too late. It's not going to happen. It's okay. They argue a delay in judgment means no judgment. But Peter shuts the door to that kind of thinking. He says it will not only come to the world, it will come upon false teachers and their followers. The judge of all the earth is not absent. He's watching. He's not inactive. And so he says in the next phrase, and their damnation slumbereth not. Destruction here is pictured as something that is alive and awake. Think of God in the Old Testament the watchful eye of God is used very positively in Psalm 121. I remember my father-in-law always reading it when we would go on a trip from Holland back home. He would read Psalm 121. Behold, he that keepeth Israel neither shall neither slumber nor sleep. He's always there. He's always watching over his people. But here, Peter talks about destruction. Is also not slumbering. It's also watchful and waiting and perhaps it's you this morning it's you that has dismissed the return of Jesus Christ it's you that is living for the now it's you that's ignoring Christianity and the heritage you've been raised with it's you that have has denied Jesus Christ maybe it's you that has been following false teachers it felt so good it looked so right and you've been duped 
You followed a lie. You're on that path. Perhaps you're the person that, in fact, took up the baton and promoted false teachings. Read this book. It's so good. And the shack gets held, handed out over and over in this culture. Consider how you have wasted your years. Consider this. You might have promoted the damnation of somebody else by the way you lived. Consider how you've kicked against God's law. Considered how you have disparaged the Son of God. Think about how careless you may have been and destroyed yourself willfully. You and I may not always keep our appointments. We say, oh, we'll be there at 10 and it's 10.30 or we forgot about it. Never with God. God keeps his word. He keeps his appointments exact and precise. Not a minute goes by that God's judgment that began the garden when Adam and Eve fell, that it will ever and has ever sat idle. An old commentator wrote this. He says about God's judgment, it advances still, strong, and vigilant as when it first sprang from the bosom of God. And it will not fail to reach the mark to which it was pointed to. It will not swerve. So what then? What if that's you? What if you're the one that's been following a lie? Peter talked about the way of truth. The way of truth. There is a way. There is a way out of this predicament. Even now, to the church of God belongs the way, not of damnation, but the way of truth. It is in the believing, faithful church you will find the gospel preached. The return of Christ does not have to be destruction for you. And the way of truth is not a concept. It is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. It is Jesus Christ who is that truth. It is Jesus Christ who gave himself for miserable, God-spurning, God-rejecting, God-blaspheming sinners such as you and me. It is God that saves sinners, not us. Oh, think about how great this gift is. Jonathan Edwards would write of this gift. He says, it was a great and indeed a much greater thing for Christ to die. That's how great it is than it would have been for all of you and all of mankind to have burnt in hell for all eternity. That is nothing compared to the worth of Jesus Christ dying for sinners like you and me. Oh, what mercy he is extending today in the gospel to you. If you will humble yourself before him, are you prepared to do that? To humble yourself and bow under his lordship, bow under his salvation. Because when you trust in him, he takes away your filth. And instead of your filth, your grossness, your vileness, that which damns you to hell, he clothes you in his precious robes of righteousness. Where the liars lead to hell, Christ saves all and invites us to heaven. Where our wills are enslaved to us and me, 
He buys sinners free by his own blood. Considering yourself, you have no hope. But considering Christ, the gates of paradise are flung open for you. If you're not his, before you leave today, I would encourage you to pray in the stillness of your soul and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to agree with God about your unworthiness and that you deserve wrath, that you can do nothing, you can give nothing, you can contribute not one iota to your salvation, but you trust on him whom the Father said, this is my son. Listen to him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will you do that? And dear church, let us zealously guard the purity of that gospel that we can herald to the nations. Let's hold it out before a neighbor that is lost, before a friend and a co-worker that is lost, before our children. And let us love it because we love Jesus and he saves us. And so let us remember that although false teachers are in the church and are testing the church, Christ says and promises that no man shall be able to pluck his own out of his hands nor the Father's hands. We are secure in our Savior's blood. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for a gospel that saves people like you, like myself, bound to our own sin, bound to our own ways. But Lord, you commanded light to shine in darkness. You commanded and the dead souls were raised to life. Oh God, would you do it even today and draw sinners to you in Jesus' name.